well, that was so good. I can just get off the stage right now. And just, man, that was good. Um, welcome to Workhouse Church this morning. How many guys gained about five pounds already from eating too much food? Yeah. I tried to counterbalance it with running and jogging and kicking and punching on Piani X3, but the pudge is right here. There's no denying the pudge. Um, well, it's an honor to be here and preach this sermon over what I call the great end to the great story. Um, but before that, I want to just praise God for Ashley Phelps and just the fact that she's alive right now. Um, there are miracles. Just with that song, Peace Be Still on the Waves, I just couldn't help but think about literally what she was going through. So um, there, is, there are miracles. There is a great story, and God has his end to the story. Um, so let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for, for your word. Thank you so much for the, the plan you have for all of us to be your vessels to be your image, to be your administers, to be your walking canvases of your great story. May we be blessed by your word. May we be encouraged by your word. And may we walk out of this building today realizing that there's a story going on in all of us that is your story that has a great end. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. So Revelation. When you think of Revelation, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Just blurt it out. Horses. Doomsday. The end. Yeah. The return. The lion. Aslan. So I think of the guy on the street holding the sign. The end is near, you know. Uh, beware, the end has come, the end is coming. I don't know why, but that comes to mind. And uh, I often wonder, you never see those guys proclaiming the end uh, in, like, the countryside. They're always in cities, you know. Something about cities makes people want to bring on the end of days. I don't know what it is, you know. Maybe it's the traffic, something like that. But um, the end, the great end. I think of that, too. What I think about, too, though, with Revelation is that God is telling us that there is a story that's going on. We're a part of the story. We aren't the story. Darn. I'm not the story. It's God's story. And regardless of what I think or how I wish it will go or what plans I might have for myself or what we may have for our lives or for Houston, the third ward, for missional communities, for America, for the world, no matter what ideal, God's got a plan that's going to work in spite of us. And either we're going to be with that plan or we're against that plan. And if we're with that plan, it's going to be a good end for us. If we're not, it's going to really stink. That's the good story. But there are a lot of things in the, in the book of Revelation that are scary. There's war. 
scary, huge angels that have one foot in the ocean and one foot on land with psychedelic-looking faces and heads and stuff. What? There's a Jesus with bronze skin, radiant, with a stern face, with a robe drenched in blood, coming back for business. <laughs> There's also the fulfillment of the New Jerusalem, a beautiful place that we can only imagine. And there's the great story of the great dragon, Satan himself, being released to only be judged and then to be thrown into torture and oblivion forever and evil with him. You see, overall, what Revelation is telling us is that God wins. That there's tribulation, there's struggle, but in the end, he gets the final say. And that every good story has to have tribulation and resolution. And that we're all a part of that, living it right now. When I think of my story in the last four years of, actually seven years, of, of God calling me into becoming a minister in the church. I think of Revelation, is that we have, I had a very small picture of what that looked like. In fact, I thought it was just this right here, you know, this on stage talking. That's what it is. That's all I saw. And then in seminary, that's all people talked about is themselves and their platforms and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and who's going to all come and see them do it. But then I read the Bible and God reminded me of how I grew in my faith, how I was discipled, and how there was a community of people um, in college. They were called the navigators that helped me grow. And what was going on right now amongst my White House family, that I have family here that I see not just on Sunday, but Monday through Thursday at 8 o'clock, uh, well, when I get there <laughs> at Starbucks. <laughs> It is. And it's bigger than this. And so the Revelation story is basically like God is saying to us, what I have for your life is much bigger than you realize. What I'm doing is bigger than you realize. You have a small understanding of it. Either you're completely wrong or if you kind of get it, it's a small, a small piece. And if I let you live out your piece, your story, it would be not as great as my story for you. So for me, a little bit about me, I'm learning that being a minister, a Christian, it's all the same thing. That there is not a becoming a, a minister, it's just being a Christian. And that we're all priests. There's no arrival or figuring out the end time or when it's going to happen. It's just right now. And we need to believe it. So when I was in college, I didn't really care about Revelation. Um, it was a story in the book that was really weird, right? And 
I began reading the Bible, and uh, Revelation just scared me. And I remember one day I was sitting in a coffee shop with some mentors of mine, uh, and we're talking about stuff. And I just kind of said, we got onto the topic of the Bible, and I just said, I don't like Revelation. It's just, it's just scary. Who would agree with me? It's scary. Yeah. And I was like, it seems like Jesus just kind of come, just kind of comes back and ruins the great party. <laughs> like, there's fun that I'm doing right now for me in my life, and he just ruins it all. Who would want that? Who would, who would look forward to that when I was 21 years old? And I remember my mentor and his wife, um, they just kind of looked, and they didn't really say anything. They just kind of just, uh, okay. But I believe that since that time, for the past 14 years, God's been helping me realize that it's something that you should be looking forward to. That the more you grow and the more you live and the more you mature and realize that things don't quite go the way you thought. And life isn't as rosy-cheeked as you thought it would be. That there's things left unfulfilled. There's some hopes and dreams that we really can't really nail down that we really can't actually accomplish. There's plans that really can't come to completion. And that's when you start longing for revelation. Start longing then for the end of the story. You start seeing that Jesus drinks in blood as a good person. So revelation, though, it's kind of like it gets a lot of hype because really it's uh, eschatology is what it's about. Eschatology is what Revelation is teaching us. And eschatology is basically a Greek word, eschatos, which means the end. There you go. Nothing deep. <laughs> it means the end. It means the end of the story. And the thing about Revelation is there's a lot of eschatological verses in the Bible. It's not just Revelation. And actually, those verses sound a lot like Revelation. And actually, when Jesus is talking to John in Revelation on the island of Patmos, he's kind of restating a lot of things that other prophets before him already said. I want to go through some verses now that are actually eschatological verses, end of it all verses that aren't Revelation. So Isaiah 2, 4. This is Isaiah, many hundreds of years before John. He said, the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle in international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will, look, will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. So this was before Babylon came and took them over. This was before Christ came, and they were already prophesying the end of days and peace forever. Micah 4.1, in the last days, the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be, it will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. In the last days, in the eschatos, this was before Christ. This was before Jesus rose from the grave and obviously before his second coming, which is not 
here yet. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. This has some things that actually have happened already. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. It will, it will remove, the, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to all the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the end of the earth. So Jesus did come back, right, on a donkey. That's in the Gospels. That's why he did it, to fulfill something, to usher in something, to tell us that something is happening. But is there peace on earth? Like full peace? No. So there's like, he did fulfill something, but there's still something left that we are looking forward to him fulfilling. Revelation chapter 1, verses 11 through 17 says, It is said, this is Jesus talking, write in a book for everyone to see, and you will see. And send it to the, to the seven churches of, this, of the cities of the Euphrates, of, the, of Ephesus, Smyr- Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, that is, John before Jesus, as if I were dead. But he, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. So Jesus has this story of I'm here and I have brought peace, but I am bringing peace. And one day I will bring peace. And it's like any story that we are living right now. I am redeemed. I am a follower of Christ. I have overcome Satan and his, and his uh, power over me. But I'm still walking through my fallenness. And one day I will be completely redeemed. Jesus in Revelation has a story for each one of us. And the seven churches kind of shows that story. It's a story of you're doing well because you have power in me. But there's still some stuff that you haven't finished yet. And you're not going to really finish that because I'm going to finish it. So I want to go through these to encourage us. The church of, of Ephesus, Revelation 2, 3 through 4. Their hearts grew cold for Jesus. It says, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. To the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2 and 9, unthankfulness. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you're rich not being thankful for what they have. The church in Perg- Pergamum, Revelation 2, 13 through 14, idols and sexual sin. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Whoa. Yet you have remained loyal to me, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. To the church in Thyatira, Revelation 2, 
8, 19 through 20, false teaching and sexual sin again. I know all the things you do as well. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see you con your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, whose calls, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. So there's a lot of false teaching going on in churches. There's a lot of people being led into things that are taking them away from Christ. And Jesus is basically going through and encouraging them, but saying, but this is still going on. Church, the church in Sardis, complacency. He says, I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation of, for, for being alive, but actually you're, you are dead. Wake up. He's saying, you're doing some good stuff, but you're, you're being lulled, and I want you to wake up. Ah, church in Philadelphia, persevere. So, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. That's kind of all he says. There's no rebuke. They're doing pretty good in Philly. So, all right, keep it going. The church in Laodicea, lacking conviction in the sermon. Here's a popular verse. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold, but I wish that you were one or the other. I wish you were hot or cold. I wish that you had conviction. I wish that you had discernment, that you would stand for something. You see, Jesus' message sounds like a, a downer. Like, man, you're just like negative, that negative Nancy, right? That Debbie Downer or some other male name so they could be gender equal or something. But why are you bringing up all this stuff? But it's, it's in love. He's saying, you know, you're still my church, but there's things in you that you're, that you're working out, that I'm working out in you. There's a story, and I'm going to bring it to its completion. You see, what Jesus is saying to the seven churches, which is a timeless story for us, for, for a person or a season in your life, for oikos, for whatever, is just saying you can identify with any one of these struggles, any one of them. I mean, I, complacency. That's a big one for me. Just getting on it. Get to it. But in that struggle, I'm working that out. And you're going to be better because of me. That there's, there's tribulation in the end times. And there's struggle. But when we all know the time has come, he will bring all that to completion. He will make it all right. So here's a question. When will it all happen? When will it all be, be made right? When will we can say, when will the time be when we can say, I'm no longer hoping for this to get better, but it is better? When, will we can, when, we, when, when can we say that? Or when will we know that the beginning of the end of the struggle has come? So in the Bible, there is an actual beginning to the end, and it's when the gospel is preached. So when you know that the end times have come, the end of trial has come, it's when you start hearing the gospel. 
And the gospel started when Christ began to rise from the grave. And he endowed us all with the Holy Spirit and the ability to preach his word. It's been going on for 2,000 years now. So we are in the end times. The gospel being preached, young people prophesying and sharing things that they shouldn't know, but that cut us to the heart because it's the word. That's the sign of the end times. Happens every Wednesday morning when we go to LHN with me, Ken, and Adrian. A kid says something in high school that cuts me because it's a sign of the end times. Mark 13, verses 8 through 10. It says, nation will go up to war against, against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be, a, be earthquakes in many places of the, of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. So there goes right there. Jesus said it. We know we're in the end times because the gospel was being preached. Now, you know, Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. So what, what should we do? Therefore, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't be drunk with wine because the, that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your heart. And give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we should be doing in these end times, as God is preparing all of us for the great end of the story, is worship. So what we're doing right now, singing songs, praising him, sharing the gospel, enjoying communion and fellowship. This is how we prepare for the end times. This is how we get ready for the end of the story. So here's something that is a tension, though. Even though we're in the end times, even though God is preparing us for Christ's return, and, you should, and we know this by the gospel being preached, hoping that we, we actually believe the gospel and prepare for his return, there's a here and not yet. See, Christ has kind of already returned, he kind of already has overcome Satan, but he also is going to. Jesus has finished the great story, but he's also going to finish it. It says in John 19.30, when Jesus had tasted it, that is the wine and the vinegar while on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Not that it's going to be or that it kind of is or it will, he said definitively, it is. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave his last breath up to his, and gave the spirit. So it is finished. The hope we long for has already come. So what is that? What is finished? Is Satan, is darkness, is evil bound or is he still loose? Is he prowling around like a lion, or is he in a cage? So 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he's kind of still around, but it's finished. But then Mark 3, 27 says, 
Let me illustrate this further. This is Jesus. He's trying to illustrate the fact that he's got more power than, than Satan does. Who is more powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. This is Jesus affirming us that he has bound up Satan and we can just rob him of this stuff. And then as he was comforting his disciples before leaving this earth for the first time, he said in John 16, 33, I have told you all this, that you may have peace about his death and return. Here on this earth, you will have many trials, many tribulations, many sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. So he was telling them this when their whole world was collapsing. See, he was saying, we have had a good time for a couple of years, but I'm leaving. But don't worry, I've overcome. So Jesus has overcome, and we have overcome in him. But there's still a part of the story left. So how did that story finally end? Revelation tells us how it will finally end and how we can look for it. Revelation 20, verses 6 through 7, 10 and 15. This is what will happen in the end. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. For then the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. But then the devil and death and the grave will be thrown, were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown or will be thrown into this lake of fire as well. This is the hard ending for, the, for those who don't believe. So what he's saying here is that there's a, there's a first resurrection. So Christ rose, and those that die are with him. That if you die right now, you are present with Christ. There, you will be with him. And then in the end, end, you will come back with him to do the final death blow on Satan. And all those who don't believe will go with him into the fiery pit. So there is not this time of you're dead and then there's nothing going to happen for you. You're, when you're dead here, you're present with the Lord. This is what Jesus is trying to say and also trying to encourage us with and Paul. In Matthew 24, 43-44, he says, understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You, you also must be ready at all times, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So he's saying, I'm going to come back. You're not going to know when I come back. And when I come back, I'm going to have those with me that have died, but you're not going to really be able to expect it. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians in the same light because they're worried about, well, there are people that have died, and this whole gospel thing is saying that we're going to have new life. 
So he, so he says the same thing to them in first Thess, first chapter 4, verse 13 17. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to, to life, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring, him, bring, bring back with him the believers who have died also. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, though they're alive. Then, together with them, we, will, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. What he's saying is that in the great end, there will just not be any death. We will see those we miss again with Jesus, and we will be caught up with them. It's just a really good, happy ending that's true for those who believe. If you're hoping for Christ, it's a really good ending. If you're not, it's not. And I stress that because that's part of the story. That's part of the believing the here and not yet. I think that we live in a time where the thrust and the power of the gospel can be lost. That you're happy, you're, you're longing for the happy ending without really the longing. Does that make sense? Like, you're not believing in the trial and the struggle. And you're not believing that there is a great good, there's a great justice for, for wrong. There is a great final javelin against the unjust punishment and treatment in this world. And so you don't really care that Jesus is coming back to make things right. I think that's a struggle we can get into. And that there is, there has to be a final javelin that is good for those who believe. And that if we love him and believe in him, there's nothing to fear. Not that we're perfect, but that we just, we just believe in his recoming. Nothing to fear. I want to dig into this a little bit more. So there's a tribulation and a trial that we're going through right now that Christ will finally end. And it started in the book of Genesis. See, whenever you get up in the morning and you have a plan for your day and it doesn't work out, it's not just the fact that you have a bad plan. It's that God has cursed your plan. <laughs> just to be honest, you're working against an all-powerful being that's trying to thwart your plans. And it's not Satan, it's actually God. Genesis 3, 14 to 17 says, after they fell out of disobedience, God says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's prophecy about Jesus overcoming Satan. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man, he said, since you lis listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat from, the ground is cursed because of you. 
All your life, you will struggle to scratch at a living from it. So what he's saying here basically is the fruit of man, children, a good job, a great plan, a great 401k, good ETFs or whatever, it's not going to fully work out. Electric transfer funds. Sorry, It's not going to really fully work out for you. I'm making it hard for you, says Jesus, so that you can end up longing for me. So you end up longing for me to complete the story. Think about it this way. If the story went totally the way that you wanted to go, would it really be all that great? No. Think about a bad movie. The story kind of stinks, right? It all goes as planned. You can kind of see it coming. Oh, watch. He's going to die right here. I told you. It doesn't really have anything that we, we look forward to. Uh, there's this show that Lisa and I used to watch called Stargate Atlantis. Nerd moment. Here it comes. And no matter how much tribulation was in the story, it was pretty obvious that there was this character called Dr. McKay. He's going to walk in and figure out this scientific mumbo-jumbo and fix everything. You remember? You watched thank, Arthur. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, whatever. And it gets kind of boring because you know that God, that he's going to fix it. But that's how I think we would like all our stories to go. Kind of like nothing to look forward to. And there's nothing to enjoy about what God has instituted with this trial and tribulation. What God is saying is, I have a better story for you. It's to redeem you from your sin, from yourself, to make you long for me. And that means I'm going to make the things you can do in this life not work out for you. And that's actually kind of what the mark of the beast is. So the mark of the beast is what? 666, right? Who's ever thought about what 666 means? Who, who knows what 666 means? Why is it 666? All right, well, so six is a symbol for lacking completion. Seven is a symbol for completion in the Bible. Six is just short of seven, right? And so what God is saying in in the book of Revelation is all things apart from me is incomplete. It's six. The fallen world is six. Our sin, our personal ambitions to make whatever work out apart from God is six. It's incomplete. It's futile. It's fallen. It's not going to work. And so Satan, the prince of it all, is six, six, six. He's double, triple incomplete. He's actually like really insulting Satan here, saying what you do is completely, completely, completely not going to work out. And what I'm going to do is totally going to work out if you believe in me. But that's good things too. Our sin isn't going to work out. Our death isn't going to work out. Our being deceived by Satan isn't going to work out. It's all completely not going to work out. God will bring a seven to the six. He will bring completion to this world. We have to long for it. We have to look forward to seeing it. 
Paul hypes this up in the book of Romans. In Romans 7, verse 15, with his personal sin, he said, I don't really understand the things that I do, for what I want to do is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Who's been there? Yes. Basically, he's saying six. Also for all of us, Romans eleven thirty-two: For God has imprisoned everyone into disobedience so that he can have mercy on everyone. There it is right there. We're in prison to disobedience. It's a hard verse, but it's a good verse. He's saying that I'm not going to fully let you bring what you bring into completion because I'm going to make it happen. Have faith in me. It says in Romans 8, 20 to 21, against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse, but with eager hope that creation looks that creation will look forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Seven. One day we will be in seven. This is hard to struggle. This is hard to embrace. I know. How can God do that? I don't fully understand it. It's a mystery. But it's fully good. And we have a part to play in it. And that's living a life believing that we are in the seven and not a part of the six. Living a life where our lives do matter and will come to completion. Which only happens in Christ. And not living for, hoping for, longing for, and doing things that we know won't really matter in the end. So this is why Jesus brings in the trepidation of the unexpectedness. He says in Revelation 16, 15, Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready. Keep on the good clothes. So they will not have to walk around naked and unashamed. I guess this is where Sunday best comes in, right? The brim hats and the flowers and the things. Maybe those old ladies in the church are just waiting for Jesus to come back. Right? Good clothes. So we should live expectant lives. We shouldn't live like we don't believe. We should live like we expect him to bring purpose and fulfillment to our lives. So think about something right now in your mind, in your heart, that you've been really hoping to do. Take time for it. I don't know how long it's been, but whatever. What is it? Is it the, the band to, get on, to be on tour in Japan? Insert name here. Whatever it is, is it to finally be at that place? What God is saying is, I'm going to bring an even better thing than that when my son returns. And you're going to love that even more than what you just thought of in your mind. If it's that your children will finally get together, grow up and get it together, God's going to make that happen. 
If it's the application, application for the job that you've wanted for, God's going to make that happen in his way. If it's me trying to be what God's called me to be as a called minister of God, God said, I've already made it happen. Just walk into it, and I'm going to make it happen. If it's the aching pain that you've been having for years in your knee or your back or whatever, and there's no cure for it, God's going to make it happen. If it's a world where people are treated equally and not because of the color of their skin or their orientation sexually or whatever, they're treated as equals as people because they're children of God, God will make it happen. If it's a place where we all can praise him from our hearts with full vigilance and no fear, God is going to make it happen. And the last thing is here, Revelation 21, verse through 8. Here's what God is telling all of us, the seven churches today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was all so gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God, from, from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the, th- from the throne saying, Look, God has, God's home is now among the people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it it is finished again. He said, as a reminder, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, the murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worship, I don't do that. (laughs) All the liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of, of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So what he's saying is, I'm gonna bring seven to this six that we live. But that means some things that we have to decide to to really give up and hope for God to rid us from. We can't just walk into heaven without desiring to be changed. We have to believe in the Lord that changes. But he's going to do it. We hope in him. So for us, that means that we should be expecting and excitedly preaching the word. We should be inviting people to join us in this worship gathering, as we already are doing. We should be telling the story of God and inviting others to live in this story. Whether it's in a house or this building or at Starbucks or in traffic, when we're next to you and we're going to tell them, hey, Jesus loves you, whatever. We should be worshiping God like we're doing now, waiting for him to bring completion to our lives. Because that is living in the here and not yet.
That is bringing peace as we long for God to complete his peace. That is throwing the dragon, throwing the great enemy into the lake of fire. It's living like who we are right now. That is showing that he is caged as we wait for our Lord to return and rid us of everything that we struggle with, whatever it is. This should be the greatest story we should ever long to hear. And it should give us hope beyond hope, more than whatever you think you're hoping in. This is it. And if it's not it, ask God, why am I not longing for this? What have I been seduced to place in the way of your second coming? What do I think is already my peace and my, and my Jesus now that it will be in the way of Jesus when he returns? What is it that Satan has seduced me to believe is good enough for me now that really is not good and is incomplete and imperfect and will not give me what I have been promised in Christ? What is the great story, the better story? And how can we live it today and be excited for when it's finally concluded that day? Let us believe and preach the gospel and live the gospel as we long for Christ to return. And let me pray for us right now. <clears throat> Lord, we praise you for your, for your goodness. We praise you for your message of hope. We praise you for your great completion to our wanderings, to our toils, to our ambitions to our struggles. We praise you, Lord, that you promised that you will bring completion to everything that you've promised in this, in this life and in, in your word. And all you ask us to do is hope and wait expectantly for you. We praise you, Lord, that if, if we ever have a time or a moment or a day where we lose hope, we can look to you and your word and this great story to reaffirm us that what you're coming to give us is good. You're coming to bring completion to this great story of life. You're coming to bring seven to the six, and the great beasts will be nothing. May we believe this. May we live it. May we encourage each other and walk into it May we invite new people into this great story today. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen.